says to her, go away, go get your husband and come back. The woman answered and said, I don't have a husband. The Jesus says to her, you correctly said, I don't have a husband because you've had five husbands and the one whom you now have isn't actually your husband. So what you've said is true. The woman says to him, Lord, I perceive that you are a prophet. That was a reading from the Gospel of John. It's a continuation of the same passage from our opening reading from episode 3. The rap battle and breakdance fight between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well at Suhar. This is a Buddhist story originally that, as far as we know, was first written down in the 2nd century AD in the Sardulakarna Avadana. Buddha's disciple Ananda asks a woman to give him water from the well and she protests that she's not of the right caste, just as the woman in the gospel protests to Jesus that she's not of the right sect. She's a Samaritan. Buddhist missionaries had been knocking about in the Eastern Mediterranean since the 3rd century BC at least, so it could be that this Buddhist folktale was part of an oral tradition that the Christian author adapted here. Another and I think likelier explanation was that it was adapted by the Christian author from a written source, a source which very possibly wasn't yet in circulation at the end of the first century, which is when the theologians usually say that the Gospel of John was created. And as the literary critic Randall Helms also pointed out, this story from John also has connections to tales from Genesis, Exodus, Ruth, and 1 Samuel from the Old Testament. But that's not why I bring this up. What I want to talk about is Jesus telling her that she's had five husbands. Imagine for a moment a hall of portraits, a vast corridor with giant imposing paintings of the great Christian heretics in profile, painted in such a way that their eyes always follow the viewer. And under each one, there's written their name and a short description, no more than two or three words, Under the portrait of Basilides, it might say, pragmatic emanationist. Now, under the portrait of Saturninus, it might say, transcendent Gnostic. But the portrait of the great arch-heretic Simon Magus would be set off by itself in its own special section at the very end of the hall, and under it, we might read the following words, founder of Christianity. That's all it would need to say. It's kind of like Ray Kroc's business card. Simon Magus is featured in Acts of the Apostles, and he's a major villain in the eyes of the late second century theologians who write against heresy. They consider him the original heretic, the source of all heresy, in fact. But they never explain what they mean by that. 
And that's incredibly important. We know from the sources that Simon was identified early as the founder of heresy. But what's not often considered is that these sources never really seem to understand exactly in what sense that was the case. This idea of Simon the founder of heresy was simply a bit of lore that they inherited, and each one of them struggles to explain it in their own way. But this Simon, who shares a name with the boon companion of Jesus, Simon Peter, who's the Ananda of Jesus, if you will, this Simon cast a long shadow over the beginnings of Christianity in a way that we can't understand if we simply take the statements of the early Christians at face value. Now, it is not unheard of for mainstream theologians in our time to suggest that this man, whether we call him Simon or Simon of Samaria or Simon Magus or Simon Megas, it's not unheard of for theologians to suggest that he was legendary, that he never existed. Among other things, the Rutledge Encyclopedia of Ancient Mediterranean Religions says that in its entry about him, for example. I've personally never understood how theologians can get away with this. I mean, they all, of course, think that Jesus was historical, but honestly, the sources for Simon are not appreciably worse than the sources for Jesus. Frankly, it's just a hop, skip, and a jump from claiming that Simon was legendary to also claiming that Jesus was legendary. But for me, I can't say for sure whether Simon was historical or not. It's just like my feelings about John the Baptist, pretty much, of privately I suspect he was legendary, but the official position of the show is we can't say for sure. I suggested earlier that it wouldn't be out of place to call Simon the founder of Christianity. Because what happened was that a school of mystics came out of Samaria sometime in the first century, possibly during the 40s or 50s AD. They had absorbed the lore of the Jewish Gnosis, which believed in the duality of matter and spirit and thought that the present world of matter was in thrall to the powers of evil and the heavenly archons and the planets and stars of the zodiac. This fear of the planets, the fear of the heavens, appears in not a few Gnostic texts. I mean, even today, if you walk outside at night, you can look up and see the very same planets as the ancients did dominating the night sky, and you can get a sense of how they came to be seen as malign rulers. I mean, you spend the entire day in the social dislocation of the empire, dealing with the misfortunes that are the common lot of everyone, except for the very few that sit atop the pyramid, and every night you're greeted again by the same damn planets winking at you from the heavens, the very seat of power in the ancient cosmology. And what's more, they're constantly moving in a predetermined course across the track of the sky, a movement that suggests purpose. It suggests that they're driving or propelling events on the earth below, such as the events taking place in your shitty ancient life. This new Jewish Gnostic cult from Samaria preached salvation from these things, a salvation offered through a divine being, the standing one, the great power of God. And in a pattern that we'll also see later in the myths about Jesus, this religious school or sect, when it began spreading its teachings, Some who received those teachings found it more fitting to believe that the Standing One had once walked the earth as a man in history, the man Simon. In the original salvation myth of the Simonian cult, the great power, the saving deity, descended from the heavens to the earth to find wisdom. Not wisdom in the sense of knowledge or experience or judgment, but wisdom the deity, 
the Hellenistic Jewish goddess, in fact, Sophia, or Chokhmah. She who built her house and hewed out her seven pillars. She who was with God before he created the world. She who, as the book of Enoch says, went forth to make her dwelling among the children of men and found no dwelling place. Well, I guess the book of Enoch forgot that she already had a whole house to live in with the seven pillars. But the saving act of the deity of the Simonian cult was to find the goddess wisdom and restore her to her dwelling place in heaven. And in time, some of the adherents of the cult began to imagine that process as having played out on earth. The great power of God was imagined to have come to earth in the person of a man named Simon, and he found wisdom. She'd been trapped here for generations, had been reincarnated over and over, and was now living and working in a brothel under the name of Helen. Now, technically, in the Simonian religion, Helen was called the Enoya, or first thought, of the deity. What they're doing is they're trying to appeal to the hip new demographic of the mid-first century Gnostics. If you wanted to be lame, like those boomer Hellenistic Jews of the time, you referred to Helen as wisdom. But if you wanted to be cool, like the Simonian Gnostics, you referred to her as the Enoya. But Simon found Helen and went around with her preaching his gospel, the salvation through grace by faith. And there are a few legends about their adventures. Uh, my own favorite is when Helen was inside of a tower and a big crowd gathered and clamored to see her. And she obliged them by looking out of all the windows in the tower at the same time. But we have here a religion that appears not to depend on Christianity yet shares many of its central themes. And strictly speaking, if we can in fact demonstrate that the New Testament writings were composed later than the first century, then we have here a religion that appears not only to share the central Christian themes, but actually to predate Christianity. And this religion that worshipped Simon Magus was still flourishing in the middle of the second century. Justin Martyr wrote at that time, he had someone of a vendetta against Simon, and he complained that almost all the Samaritans and a few even of other nations worship him and acknowledge him as the first God. But that's not the only thing he says about these people, the Simonians. In one of the most important statements that have ever been made or will ever be made by a Christian, he says that the Simonians call themselves Christians despite not being Christians and he says that the Romans do not persecute or oppose them. I want you to really consider this because no one ever talks about it. This Christian theologian in the year 156 is telling us that this religion, whose concepts appear not to come from Christianity, is an enemy of mainstream Christianity, yet they call themselves Christians. And not only that, but the Romans in some way distinguish between them and mainstream Christians what Justin would call Christians. The likeliest explanation for this is that the Simonian religion was a prior form of Christianity or an antecedent of Christianity, and Justin did not understand that fact. Now, when I was a kid, about 10 years old, I went to a family reunion, and I kept encountering other kids who were telling me that they were my cousins, and I didn't believe them. I didn't see them on a regular basis. You know, they didn't share my last name, but... I was too young to understand how family relations work. I didn't understand that someone could be your cousin as long as you share a common grandparent. And Justin's in a similar situation. He's like the 10-year-old kid in this scenario 
Only here, he's encountering a long-lost, long-separated ancestor of his own religion, and his mind can't process the relation between the two. And this also explains why the anti-heresy writers like Irenaeus, Hippolytus, Pseudo-Tertullian, Hegesippus, why each of them has a different explanation of how the story and belief system of Simon relate to their form of Christianity. The Gospel of John, from our reading, from the very same time period as Justin Martyr, the mid-2nd century, also has somewhat to say about the Simonians in an oblique way. Jesus travels to Samaria, the very birthplace of Simon in the Simonian faith. He meets this Samaritan woman at the well. And in general, the role that this woman plays in the Gospel of John is that of generic Samaritan number one. Everything out of her mouth is a Samaritan stereotype. She's like one of those girls from Lisa Strata, whose entire dialogue is anti-Spartan or anti-Athenian tropes or anti-Corinthian tropes. She's surprised that a Jew would want to touch her water pail and wouldn't consider it unclean. And she says that Mount Gerizim is the only proper place to worship God. She lionizes the biblical hero Jacob, who was said in Samaritan Midrash to have validated Mount Gerizim as the true place of worship. And she also personifies another Samaritan trope, the legend of Simon and Helen from the Simonian religion. Jesus tells her that he knows about her marital history, the fact that she's had five husbands. The man she's with now isn't really her husband. The mainstream theologians have never figured out what Jesus is talking about here. Now, you could read this story literally and accept the highly questionable circumstance of a woman of this culture and this time period who's been divorced five times. But then in that case, how the hell does Jesus know about any of that? But I think, and here I'm in agreement with critics like the legendary Robert M. Price, that in this part of the story, Jesus has actually been brought face to face with the very demigod of the Samaritan religion as the author understands it, the Simonian deity who was found by Simon in the brothel, a woman who's been married five times because she'd been reincarnated five times, only to find herself living in sin. The author of John had already demonstrated that Jesus was superior to Dionysus in the water to wine story, and now he has him face off with the wisdom deity of the Samaritan Simonian cult. And how does it end but that Christ shows himself superior to wisdom, such that she tells the villagers in the next scene, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. In episode 10, I commented that the early Christians, and especially the gospel authors, were constantly fighting and feuding with other Christian sectarians over some things of which we're aware, and some of which we might not even be aware anymore. The author of John, like Justin Martyr, knew very little about the cult of Simon or the Samaritans who were associated with it. He's simply pulling from a grab bag of stereotypes, some of whose elements come from the Samaritan beliefs that are closer to traditional Judaism, and some of them are Samaritan Gnostic beliefs. But he knows enough to understand that the Samaritans, the rival sect, are wrong. He goes on to have Jesus say to the woman, you, meaning you Samaritans, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we know. That is a sectarian statement. And by the way, it's a sectarian statement that not even the early editors of the Gospel of John understood, because not too long after the Gospel of John came into circulation, someone added to what Jesus says here. Because in modern Bibles, Jesus says here, 
You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. And that last bit is a gloss that does not actually follow from what he just previously said. It was added by a clueless editor who didn't recognize what the original author of the passage was saying. But the Simonian religion that began in Samaria had an origin that was outside of mainstream Christianity, and the writer of this gospel was unaware of that fact. What was more important to him was besting his sectarian enemies. And we will find in this new series beginning today that all the books of the New Testament, in fact, the very New Testament compilation itself, were forged in an environment in the second century which we of the 21st century would readily identify as that of sectarian conflict. And with this in mind, it's time to rethink the very creation of the New Testament. You're listening to Born in the Second Century, and it's now 5 p.m. on November 24th, 2021. This is episode 17 of the regular series, which is about the beginnings of Christianity in the two, in the 100s AD, not the first century. Hosted by Chris Palmero in an audio format. The music for today's broadcast was provided by the recording group Pompey Gray. Please ensure that you support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash born in the second century. And doing so at the $5 level will enable you to access a monthly bonus show. Last month, the bonus show was about the pagan quotes in the New Testament. This month, I'll be releasing a bonus show responding to and countering Bart Ehrman's comments about the historical Jesus and the historicity of Jesus that he made during a recent interview. I'm going to demonstrate that while he presents himself as a kind of a one-stop shop for anyone who's a non-Christian or skeptic who seeks to learn the unadulterated truth about Christianity, he embraces and perpetuates certain assumptions, certain conservative assumptions about early Christianity that, in my view, make him hardly any different from the many conventional theologians that are critiqued on this show. So please consider contributing and gaining access to these bonus shows, and your contributions will support Born in the Second Century, which is a sorely needed counterweight to the endless ocean of conservative Christian podcasts that only seems to get bigger by the day. Did you know that there are more conservative Christian podcasts being planned right now than there are Christians on the face of the earth? Without Born in the Second Century, this would be the future. Imagine a 24-minute podcast episode, which is an interview with some dork Christian professor talking about how the New Testament is mostly historical, except for the miracles, with people audibly coughing and clicking and swallowing all over the track, constantly hunting for words, constantly leaving dead air, telling you nothing that you can't learn by reading the professor's latest book. These interviews usually being merely a vehicle to sell books. And they all begin with the host being relatable and talking about his weekend and craft beer and the latest developments in fantasy football. Imagine that, stomping on a human face forever. We want to prevent that. And hey, this is the very beginning of Born in the Second Century in terms of its life cycle. So if you're listening to this right now, close to its original release date, you have technically gotten in on the ground floor of something here. I know that's something I've always wanted to do because we think to ourselves, Why didn't I invest in Bitcoin when it first started? Why didn't I visit Tulum before it got built up? Why didn't I come up with the Tamagotchi? Well, it's happening now. You're an original listener, so 
please check out the Patreon. And your support will enable us to access more research materials and expand the amount of shows on offer. This is actually the one-year anniversary of Born in the Second Century. In the intro stinger to episode one, I said that I was recording it on November 25th, 2020. And it's fitting that we reach that milestone, having just completed our first big project, a major series, the Pliny series. And I have the feeling that that's going to be big at some point. Whether big in a good way or big in a fucking horrible way, it's too soon to tell. Now, for the first time ever, we have Christianity news to report. Usually there's no news because everything we're talking about happened 2,000 years ago. But occasionally Christianity is in the headlines. In September of 2021, in the journal Scientific Reports, an article appeared with the following title. A Tunguska-sized airburst destroyed Tel al-Hammam, a medieval Middle Age, Middle Bronze Age city in the Jordan Valley near the Dead Sea. As Ewan McGregor said of Attack of the Clones, that's a terrible, terrible title. This paper presented the hypothesis that in 1650 BC, an airburst event occurred in what's now Israel. A meteor exploded in midair over an ancient city, destroyed it. Now, spoiler alert, this was published by a group based out of an unaccredited evangelical Bible college, that's Trinity Southwestern University. Now, I don't think every single co-author of the paper was an evangelical Christian archaeologist, but the project as a whole was being done through this school. And they're quick to mention that the city, Tal al-Hammam, could be the biblical city of Sodom, as described in the book of Genesis chapter 19. But they also say, quote, this issue is beyond the scope of this investigation. But then they also say, quote, nevertheless, you always got to brace yourself when a Christian scholar says nevertheless. Nevertheless, we consider whether oral traditions about the destruction of this urban city by a cosmic object might be the source of the written version of Sodom in Genesis. End quote. By now, your sixth sense should be going off. Now, the paper itself is longer than the Queen's menopause, so I'm just going to do a few quick highlights of it. They talk about evidence of destruction that would match the possible effects of an airburst. They conclude that an airburst is the likeliest explanation for this city being destroyed. They talk about the high incidence of salt and other strange geological artifacts at the site. And then they say, quote, An eyewitness description of this 3,600-year-old catastrophic event may have been passed down as an oral tradition that eventually became the written biblical account about the destruction of Sodom. There are no known ancient writings or books of the Bible other than Genesis that describe what could be construed as the destruction of a city by an airburst or impact event, end quote. When I first read this, I didn't know that it came from a project under the aegis of an evangelical Christian school, but I was very dismayed to see that many online, even non-Christians, were saying things like, I'm not a believer. But I think it's so cool when archaeology supports the findings of the Bible. And that type of strong, supportive reaction from civilians is part of the continued and endless backlash to the new atheism where nowadays to be considered a serious person online, you have to go out of your way to demonstrate that you respect the Bible and Christian tradition, even though you don't personally hold to it. Something that's long been overdue for a correction, by the way. But my primary interest is on the dating of biblical stories and biblical documents. And I immediately recognize 
that by suggesting that the story of Sodom in Genesis was a memory or a reflection of this airburst incident, these Christian scholars were engaging in a common fallacy also found in Christian apologetics, which is that they forget that the Jewish Bible is essentially tales and poems and not an attempt at writing or representing history. In fact, ironically, they sell the writers of the Jewish Bible short by assuming that they were trying to be historians, but even where they do concede that the Bible stories may have been touched up or edited at a later time, they always assume that they must go back to a historical core. Like in this case, Genesis 19. To them, the author would have had on his desk some cold, dispassionate, bare-bones account of this airburst. And then he was like, I don't know, maybe I'll transmute this into a religious story about God smiting this city because of its lack of hospitality. But we have to look at the possibility that the stories were intended from the beginning as religious narratives and self-consciously crafted as such, and any historical details that appear in them rather reflect things that would have been observable in the writer's time. In this case, this area around the Dead Sea, there was observable evidence of some ancient destruction event well into the second century AD. The Talmud says in the tractate Berachot, quote, the sages taught that there are a list of places where one is required to recite a blessing because of miracles that were performed there. End quote. And one of those places is what they call Lot's wife, who turned into a pillar of salt, according to the Genesis story. And recall that there are high concentrations of salt in this affected area. And Josephus, writing in the first century, tells the story of Lot's wife at the destruction of Sodom. She turned into a pillar of salt. And then he says, quote, I have seen it, and it remains at this day. If signs of destruction were present at this site at the end of the first century when Josephus was writing, at the end of the second century when the Talmud was being compiled, these same signs of destruction would have been visible to the writer of the Genesis story, whom I believe was writing after the end of the Babylonian exile in the Persian period in the 400s and 500s B.C., but here with this paper, we're being asked implicitly to accept that because there may have been an airburst in 1650 BC, that the Genesis story in some way goes back to 1650 BC. And I want you to be aware that in every single case where an early date for the composition of a biblical text is being put forth, there is always a simpler explanation for a later date. To the extent that the Sodom and Gomorrah cycle reflects some actual destruction of a city, the story itself could be partly an etiological myth designed to explain strange artifacts that were still in the landscape in the author's time, like Josephus was still able to see at the end of the first century, like the writers of Berachot could still see in the second century. So that's what we can say about dates, but predictably, there has been a backlash against this paper led by what we might call more secular researchers. In fact, the very physicist whose model of asteroid airburst was used by these archaeologists said that he objected to their use of his model. And he, Mark Boslow, is probably the main expert on airburst events in the world. And he basically tapped them on the shoulder and said, You, you know nothing of my work. The archaeologists who published this paper have also been accused of cherry-picking and image manipulation. So... We can sit back like Michael Jackson with the popcorn and the thriller video and watch all this play out, but the key takeaway should be that it's impossible to establish an early date for a biblical writing based on internal evidence only. To place it that early 
you need either a sufficiently ancient manuscript or sufficiently early external witness. So that was our top news story this week. Today we're introducing a new concept, a recurring series on Born in the Second Century called Brighten the Corners. And it's going to be an important part of our quest to demonstrate the late origins of Christianity. And we'll periodically have a Brighten the Corners episode or little series of episodes as we go forward. Just like with the Temple of Time, Brighten the Corners is already an actual thing that exists. So we'll see how long I can get away with using that name. But the idea behind the Brighten the Corners episodes is to explain and illuminate some of the background for the theories that I discuss on this show. Now, I have to admit that some of the feedback that I've gotten from previous shows, might as well talk about this now, some of the feedback has been that the presentation has tended to be somewhat advanced at times. Now, to those who believe that I, on occasion, have talked above the heads of some listeners, I can only repeat what Francois Rabelais wrote at the end of Gargantua and Pantagruel, Anisoir qui mal y pense. Critic, Jay Sherman, voiced by John Leguizamo. But the point is well taken, so I'm now doing a brief series in these next few episodes where I lay out the whole New Testament in somewhat of a broad overview format and discuss dates and authors. It's going to be a big picture series. And the subject today is of no small importance. What was the origin of the New Testament itself? How did this collection of 27 books actually come to be? Our objective today is to demonstrate that all copies and all versions of the New Testament in existence all go back to a single original edition that made its appearance at the end of the 100s AD. This is the theory of the theologian David Trobisch, which I have adopted and incorporated into the special paradigm of born in the second century. And on today's show, I'll discuss it thoroughly. It's somewhat of a radical theory by conventional standards, but as with everything else on this show, I'm prepared to go beyond even what the mainstream considers radical. I'm going to take the theory of David Trobisch. I'm going to strap it to a rocket. I'm going to shine that rocket up real nice, turn it sideways, and stick it. No, no. I'm going to strap this theory to a rocket and blast it into the stratosphere. And I'm going to get as radical as I can, within reason. And once we've covered the main theory, we'll be in a position to talk about each of the New Testament books generally. And we'll do that over the next few episodes. Talk about how each one was assigned its traditional date and its traditional author. We'll cover the dating and authorship theories of the fundamentalist, of the mainstream Christian theologians, and lastly, my own views on the dating and authorship for each book. We'll do all 27 New Testament books. Then after that, I want to talk about the way in which the New Testament was rolled out as a product, because that's how we should really think about it as a product, released by a specific set of entrepreneurs, the nascent Catholic Church. And we'll talk about what the New Testament's actual purpose was. And in doing so, we're going to look closely at the testimonies of two men who had a lot to do with this rollout, this new product launch, that took place in the 170s and 180s AD, the ancient Catholic theologians Irenaeus and Papias. But above all, what we'll demonstrate is that all of this early history about the formation of the New Testament will end up supporting the theory that Christianity itself originated in the second century. Now, why is the development of the New Testament canon important? Why is it significant that the New Testament appeared all at once, relatively early in the history of Christianity? Well, as we'll see, it goes back to one of my underlying themes on this show, which is that the early Christian tradition is based on hardly anything like what we should expect if Christianity originated after the ministry of Jesus in the first century. In this case, all the big Christian writers of the early days know everything there is to know about Jesus and the apostles and Paul, 
only because of what it says in some book. It's not like Tertullian converts to Christianity in the 190s and he's told like, okay, uh, I'm going to introduce you to some guys who knew some guys who knew Paul, some guys over here who possess some real lived experience that was handed down from Jesus and the apostles, some guys over here who can say somewhat about how the church traditions actually developed until now. No, they get all their lore about this religion from the New Testament as if there was no intervening tradition over the entire first and second centuries other than a handful of hymns and prayers and pathetic little creeds that could just as easily be explained as having derived from the Jewish Gnosis. The Christian writers of the 180s, 190s, 200s, 210s are just as frickin' clueless as we are about how the church originated, developed, and grew between the time of Jesus and their own time. What they know comes almost exclusively from the New Testament, which, as we'll show, made its appearance only a few minutes before their time, practically. Always remember the quote from St. Eddie, the radical critic Edwin Johnson that I've repeated on several episodes talking about these early church writers, the past is more obscure to them than it should be to us. And a big reason for that is that they are all relying on the same written testimony. And if we can show that the New Testament debuted in full just a few years before Papias, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Theophilus, Clement all wrote their books, then we can see how limited they are as to their knowledge of Christian origins and how limited our own evidence for the creation of this religion even is. On that subject, St. Eddie had something else to say. And he was rightfully dismissing the idea that you needed a master's degree or a PhD in a field like theology to be able to discuss these issues. He said, the data are few and the scope of the investigation is within the range of every clear thinking person. That's something you ought to take to heart, especially if you're a listener who doesn't have a degree in biblical studies. The theologians make this shit out to be more complicated than it really is. And they try to shame you into thinking that only academics can really grasp this stuff. You have to understand that that is all smoke and mirrors. I would agree with it and accept it if a doctor said it, but not a theologian. Maybe a text critic, if he's talking specifically about text criticism, but not a divinity PhD talking about Christian origins. Because this early Christianity stuff at its core is really just about reading books. You could argue that as such... Training in history might come into play, sociology, anthropology. Well, sure. But do you think that the masters of divinity are sufficiently degreed up in all those fields too? They're not. Now, listener Todd pointed this out. When the theologians challenge you and say that you don't have the right degrees in this field, you should understand that even if you did have a biblical studies degree, they would still find some way to discount that. You know, you didn't go to the right school, didn't go to Yale, Princeton, didn't study under the right professors, didn't study under Kim Green at Harvard, among others. So it's all smoke and mirrors, like I said. Now, there are a lot of highly insightful theologians, uh, many of whom I use for research for this show, but I'm sure they could have written these same things and had these same insights about Christianity without the six years to eight years of glorified Bible study where half the courses they took were preparation for ministry. They would just need the same intelligence that we already know they have and an interest in the topic. And that's rare still. You know, it's rare for someone who's not a Christian to care about things like whether 1 Corinthians 14.34 and 14.35 were original to the text or not. But the question that we want to reflect on and keep in mind throughout today's show is, 
if the New Testament debuted as a self-contained book toward the end of the second century, and if these guys like Clement and Irenaeus had hardly any independent tradition from which to draw outside of this book, what implications does that have for the history of early Christianity? Back after this. Heresies by the early theologian Irenaeus from the 190s AD. He who in the New Testament raises up from the stones children to Abraham is he who will gather, according to the Old Testament, those who will be saved from all the nations, as Jeremiah says. That was a reading from Irenaeus, who clearly, in the 190s AD, knows about some written document called the New Testament. The term New Testament, that is Ekaine Diatheke, occurs in the Septuagint, the old Greek translation of the Jewish scriptures at Jeremiah chapter 31. And the word testament is also translated as covenant, quote, Days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It won't be like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land in Egypt, end quote. New Testament is the title of the exclusively Christian scriptures that are accepted by most churches today. It contains four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Acts of the Apostles, the letters of Paul, that is Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. And then the letter to the Hebrews, the letter of James, the 1st and 2nd letters of Peter, the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd letters of John, the letter of Jude, and the book of Revelation. Not until the 4th century AD do we see any authoritative statements from the church to the effect that these 27 books and no others are to be considered the official contents of the New Testament to which no one can add, from which no one can take away. But as we just saw in the reading from Irenaeus all the way back in the 190s, there was already something called the New Testament in the late 2nd century, something you could read. It was an actual book. One of the most enduring and one of the most insidious myths that I have to tackle on this show is the one that says that the Christian canon, and canon means essentially the official list of books that belong in the New Testament, canon coming from a word for rule, as in something to measure with, but the myth that says that the Christian canon developed slowly, organically, and over a long period of time. And a corollary of this myth that's often believed even by many critics of Christianity is that the list of official New Testament books was finalized at the Council of Nicaea in the 300s AD. Of course, the Council of Nicaea did not actually deal with that question. In point of fact, in some Christian sects that exist to this day, the list of canonical books has never been formally defined. But on today's show, we're going to demonstrate that as this quote from Irenaeus suggests, a compilation called the New Testament that contained more or less the same 27 books that it contains now, already existed in the late 100s AD. Now here's what's probably baking your noodle already. If I usually spend this entire podcast talking about how the Christian book should be dated later than most everyone thinks, 
Why in the blue hell would I now be calling for the New Testament collection to be dated earlier than most everyone thinks? And it's at this point that I want to invoke the radical critic Richard Carrier, who also endorses the theory that the complete New Testament debuted early, and he says, quote, Most atheists think that they want the reverse to be the case, that the canon not being decided until a committee got at it hundreds of years after the fact is the more embarrassing theory and gives greater authority to the books excluded, end quote. That is a keen insight because what he's saying is that the theory that the New Testament collection wasn't defined until the 4th century seems to be the more radical one. I mean, to be sure, I don't give a good fuck what atheists think is the more embarrassing theory or what would hurt believers the most. But what interests me is the idea of a theory that's radical in appearance only. And probably we've all heard this same myth ourselves about the canon being developed late You know, the new atheist would say things like, you didn't even decide upon your approved books until the Council of Nicaea. And those books were edited and changed and retranslated so many times that they were meaningless by the time you voted in committee to establish your Bible, Mrs. Garrison. First of all, you always want to be cautious about any, like, skeptic whose big argument is that the books of the Bible were translated and retranslated so many times that... We don't have any idea what they originally said. Like, first and foremost, that actually implies that what the books originally said was somehow more true than what they currently say, which I don't think that's an argument that a skeptic wants to make. And two, you know, the New Testament books were written in Koine Greek. Uh, I mean, we know that. We can still see all the stupid puns, the lame callbacks to the Septuagint, various grammatical mistakes, bizarre neologisms like... Jesus in the Lord's Prayer says, give us this day our daily bread. That word that's usually translated daily is in Greek, epiousios. No one knows exactly what it means, and the early Christian commentators all argue about it. What epiousios means is essentially epiousios. Might as well be a brand name. Like, Jesus is reading copy for something called epiousios bread. Like, Remember to pray to God, keep calm, and ask your baker for Epiusios bread. So the fact that these books were translated and retranslated is a non-factor because we have them in their original language, but establishing what the original Greek text actually said is an entirely different matter. But translation has minimal bearing on that question. But the theory that the New Testament canon originated slowly over time, despite appearing to be somewhat radical, is actually the conventional Christian view. The conventional view of how the New Testament was formed was that first, the individual books were written, and they were all written by good people with great, big, compassionate hearts, loved Jesus, loved their fellow Christians, and above all, were only interested in the truth, weren't duplicitous in any way, weren't lying, weren't perpetrating any kind of fraud, just diligent, careful, faithful people wanting to write the things about Jesus. And these things, like the Gospels, the letters, Revelation, they circulated independently at first. And their authors were not in any way trying to write scripture or something that would end up in a scripture compilation someday. And their generation eventually passed away. And the nascent Christian religion consisted of scattered, decentralized churches, congregations of the same kind of good, loving, faithful, and honest Christians who had written the Gospels and the Epistles. And just like those writers of the Gospels and the Epistles, these later generations of Christians were only interested in the truth about Jesus and about Christianity. And over time, over many decades, even centuries, 
They started to notice that whenever they read books and letters about Jesus in their church services, they always seemed to be going back to the same 30 or so books over and over again. So it was a kind of organic consensus that developed as to what books Christians considered authoritative. It was usually the ones that were apostolic and ancient and ones that were accepted by church leaders from earlier times. And at some point, maybe in the fourth century, Christians woke up one day and said, hey, we've got ourselves an official canon here. We didn't self-consciously compile it. We didn't vote on it and argue over it. But we noticed that most of the churches in the world always keep going back to the same set of books when doing their preaching. So on this view, the New Testament came together by default, almost as an unintended consequence of Christians using the same books year after year. There was no official decree Certainly there wasn't some pre-existing compilation called the New Testament that had been floating around. And this is the common view, the consensus view among theologians as to how the New Testament originated. Basically, it was by accident. And I spoke at the beginning of episode eight about how the minimal historical Jesus, that is the Jesus who barely leaves an impact on his contemporary society, yet that lack of impact being precisely what gives Jesus his power and significance I spoke about that as being a paradigm that was developed after World War I and really only makes sense in a post-World War I context. I would explain that more, but then we'd be in very real danger of this podcast swiftly converting into a show about my other obsession, which is the, the impact of World War I on culture. But this other idea that I've outlined here, that the contents of the New Testament were decided on by a kind of a slow, organic consensus, is also an idea that could only have developed in relatively modern times. It's a product of social changes in Germany and England going all the way back to the Protestant Reformation and the early modern period in general. The idea that a decentralized, subjective process is always superior to a centralized one. And we see that in things like sola scriptura and the priesthood of all believers in the Protestant Reformation. The idea that it's not the church that's supposed to tell you what books are authoritative, You yourself as a believer are responsible for establishing a spiritual relationship with the text, and you will know and confirm in your heart that it's authoritative, that it comes from God. And we see the same type of thinking throughout the culture of the Northern European states, things like common law, you know, property ownership and fee simple, the philosophy of empiricism, the ideology of classical liberalism, all systems that place heavy emphasis on the individual making decisions on their own and recognizing truth individually, and a consensus slowly developing out of that, if it even does. So it comes naturally for theologians coming out of these cultural backgrounds to suggest that ancient Christians arrived at their New Testament canon in the same way. That's one reason why it's so easy for the theologians to posit that the New Testament was put together over time and by degrees. Another reason is that it's pretty much necessary to posit this in order for modern Christianity to work. And to explain that, I want to do a brief discussion here of the differences between Christian apologetics and Jewish or Muslim apologetics. From a very early period, from the Hellenistic period, in fact, Jewish apologetics has been fairly consistent. The central premise of Judaism being that God is one They argued that one can recognize God simply by looking around at creation. And this wasn't some complex Kalam cosmological argument. It was more like, go spend a day staring at a river and you'll realize that God is one and he created everything. And so for Judaism to quote unquote work, it is not required 
that the Old Testament writings be literally, historically true or even consistent with one another or even consistent internally. Now, Muslim apologetics. In Islam, the claims of the religion are founded on the idea that God communicated his new revelation directly to Muhammad. So it's just like any other similar situation where you have anyone receiving a divine revelation, whether it's Montanus or Mani or the Bab from the Baha'i faith or Handsome Lake of the Iroquois, or Joseph Seed from Far Cry 5, the credibility of the claims would appear to rest on the credibility of the prophet. They're written down in a single book, which is problematic, because if that book were compromised, then the religion could be compromised in turn. Now, Muslim apologists tend to present the unitary, single, independent Quran as actually being one of the primary strengths of Islam, and they compare it favorably to the chaos of early Christian texts with their 400,000 text variants, but it's actually a massive weakness. But Islam from the beginning also presented itself as kind of a continuator of Judaism. It was a self-conscious Jewish heresy, whereas Christianity was an unself-conscious Jewish heresy. And so therefore, given that, we find that just as in Jewish apologetics, so also in Muslim apologetics is there a heavy reliance on the idea that God's omnipotence is self-evident. So I think personally that even if the Quran were in some way compromised, Islam might certainly be imperiled, but it wouldn't be a life-threatening wound. And the same thing with Judaism, because the, the thought world of those two religions is internally consistent enough to recover from something like that. But Christianity, at least in its modern form, has a unique challenge because not only does it have to demonstrate a lot of the same claims as the other two faiths, but it also has to demonstrate the flesh and blood death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And there's no other way to demonstrate that other than historical records. And nearly all of those records are found in the New Testament. And therefore, the New Testament has to be credible in some way for the religion to continue as a going concern. And so the books have to be early and in some way genuine, but that's not all. It's also necessary that these books be seen as reasonably independent of one another. So Mark has to go back to unique sources. John has to go back to unique sources. Can't have John just using Mark as a framework and then just adding his own bullshit. You know, Matthew has to have gotten his special material from a unique source. And ideally, you would have wanted ancient Christians to independently audit and assess these sources in these books you wouldn't want some schmohawk like Irenaeus coming and saying like, okay, these 27 books are the authoritative ones. These are the ones you're all going to work off of. What you would want instead is for the various component books of the New Testament to be gradually accepted over time by a common consensus throughout the churches of the Mediterranean world because it supports the primary apologetics claim of the religion. These are historical documents that are reasonably independent from each other and have all been vetted and the bogus documents were eventually called. And without something like this, the entire apparatus of modern Christian apologetics cannot function. I said in episode three that one possible definition of Christianity is a religion that believes that 27 specific books were written in the first century. All of the other beliefs of modern Christianity as a religion are in some way contained in that statement. I might add to that now and say, 27 specific books were written in the first century, and thousands of individual Christians vetted them over a period of decades, and they were recognized to be authentic by natural consensus. And always remember that when pressed, a Christian apologist will admit that the providence of the New Testament books actually doesn't matter. 
What matters more is the fact that the early church came to naturally agree that these books were authoritative and early, or apostolic is the word commonly used, like I said, and a long, drawn-out, decentralized process would, to them, certify that even further. This whole idea about the canon of the New Testament emerging after a long period of sifting and vetting is necessary to the apologists because it implies that there's an objective truth to the Christian texts. However, if the New Testament happened to emerge essentially out of nowhere, with all or most of its constituent books included, and that every single copy that we possess ultimately comes back from that one first edition, then guess what? That means that all of the claims of Christianity, including its claim to historicity, go back to a single unprovenanced book. And we're going to hopefully demonstrate on today's show that that is exactly what happened. The New Testament emerged in the late 2nd century like Minerva from the head of Zeus, and this is going to support the thesis that Christianity was born in the 2nd century. Because what we end up seeing is that as soon as the New Testament debuts, every clerical writer immediately gets in line and accepts the New Testament as the basis for their religion. And that's because they didn't have anything that could supersede it. They didn't have a more ancient or more authoritative tradition, like take Clement of Alexandria writing in the 190s, This man was a Christian before the New Testament came out. He continues to be a Christian after the New Testament came out, but he readily accepts its authority, as we'll see in a minute. Did he not have access to any organic, independent Christian tradition that superseded the New Testament? Like, I thought Christianity had been around for 150 years prior to him. Why was he so willing to just pick up a book that probably came from the Christian church in Rome and immediately take all his marching orders from it? 150 years ago, it was 1871. Imagine if a religion started in 1871 and in only just this year, in 2021, was a big book of its authoritative text released and all around the world, all of the priests of this religion immediately begin teaching only from it. It's like, what were they teaching from for the entire five previous generations? When it comes to Christianity, we know the answer as to what they were doing. They were doing mystical speculation at the fringes of Judaism and Gnosticism, and they weren't getting very far. And the release of the New Testament by the mainstream church was decisive in Christianity becoming a self-sustaining religion. Now, to begin this show, I wanted to present you with the conventional consensus view as to how the New Testament books were defined. So I took notes on a nine trillion page book by the theologian Bruce Metzger, on the development of the canon, well, I'll save you the trouble of reading this by saying that it doesn't really present a definitive conclusion on how the New Testament canon was established other than it happened slowly and organically. And people essentially woke up one day in the fourth century and suddenly realized that there was an official list of New Testament books. And Bruce Metzger said that opponents of the church like Marcion, like the Gnostics, like the Montanists started to cite all kinds of different writings, apocryphal writings, started to claim authority based on direct inspiration or communication with God in some cases. And that inspired the mainstream church to get more serious about what books it did and didn't consider authoritative. That's it. But what I would much rather talk about than summarize this book, there is a lot, even in this book, which presents the conventional view, there's a lot in it to suggest that there actually was an authoritative New Testament well before the fourth century as far back as the late 2nd century, in fact. For example, he says that Clement of Alexandria regarded as authoritative scripture the 
fourfold gospels and the 14 epistles of Paul, including Hebrews, along with Acts, 1 Peter, 1 John, and the Apocalypse. Sir, to me, that means he had a copy of the New Testament in his hands. In fact, Bruce Metzger says that Clement cites every New Testament book except Philemon, James, 2 Peter, and 2 and 3 John. Irenaeus, from the same time period, Bruce Metzger says that he makes 1,075 allusions to the books of the New Testament. The only ones he doesn't quote are Philemon, 2 Peter, 3 John, and Jude. Tertullian, shortly after those two. Metzger says that he cites all the books of the New Testament except 2 Peter, James, and 2 and 3 John. Origen, in the 3rd century, he says that Origen has no question about most of the books of the New Testament. The exceptions are James, 2 Peter, and 2 and 3 John. In fact, Origen rattles off the New Testament books in their entirety and in close to their modern order. He mentions Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then two epistles of Peter, then James and Jude, then the epistles of John, then Acts of the Apostles, and lastly, he mentions the 14 epistles of Paul, and he included Hebrews among the 14. Hippolytus, also from the early 3rd century, Metzger says that he accepted four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He accepted 13 letters of Paul and not Hebrews, and he accepted Acts, 1 Peter, 1 and 2 John, and Revelation. He accepted those as Scripture, and he had a knowledge of 2 Peter and the letter of James. Now, Bruce Metzger indicated that Hippolytus didn't accept the letter to the Hebrews as Scripture, but really what Hippolytus seems to have said was that he didn't think it was written by Paul. He didn't seem to have had an issue with it otherwise. But to me, these guys have the New Testament. And by the way, just now in the list of books they didn't quote, the same few titles kept coming up. So let's talk about that real quick. Philemon came up a few times. I mean, it's really short, doesn't contain much in the way of Christian doctrine. Same thing with 2nd and 3rd John, which also came up a few times. They're extremely short. In fact, when translated into English, they're considered the shortest books in the English language. And they don't contain anything in the way of teaching that can't be found in 1st John, which was quoted by all these guys. Um, Hebrews. Hebrews had a cloud over it from day one. It contains not a few questionable statements, and it clearly looks, especially at the end, like someone was trying to edit it and convert it into a letter of Paul. And these ancient commentators were smart enough, at least some of them, to be suspicious of it. The epistle of James, as Lutherans well know, there is a lot in the epistle of James for Christians to balk at. And Second Peter, which also came up a few times as another book that was rarely quoted, it contains a large part of the letter of Jude within it. So that could have set off these ancient Christians' bullshit detector now, the fact that these ancient Christians doubt this little handful of books does not mean that they were not part of the New Testament compilation. And I'll revisit this topic again later. But just like with anything else, you know, you've got a big book of H.P. Lovecraft stories or Philip K. Dick stories on the shelf, and there are some you like to revisit again and again, and some you don't. And the ones that you don't like and don't think should even be in there are probably someone else's favorite. I mean, you look at things like Star Wars, there are many who reject the prequels and don't consider them canonical. Well, George Lucas, the creator of the franchise, most certainly considers them canonical. And I'm so hardcore, personally, that I even reject Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi as canonical. So when you see someone like the Christian cleric Gaius from around 200 AD saying that, hey man, I don't consider the book of Revelation to be scripture, it's, that's just like his opinion, man. 
He doesn't like one of the books that's included in his collection. He's not saying that Revelation shouldn't be included in some theoretical, non-existent collection that hadn't been formulated yet. What he's saying is that he wishes that Revelation would be taken out of his existing Bible. So I hope the distinction is clear. We always need to be asking ourselves why all of these guys, all of these Christian writers, beginning in the 180s AD, are suddenly all quoting from the exact same set of authoritative books if the New Testament canon wasn't closed until the 300s. And not only that, but they all hate the same exact disputed books as well. I mean, they all reject the infancy gospel of James. They all have the same wishy-washy attitude about the shepherd of Hermas. None of them accept any gospel outside of the primary four. Could it be that the New Testament collection existed and was known and was substantially complete even at this early date? Back after this. From Clement of Alexandria, from Book 5 of the Stromata, from the 190s AD. The precepts of both the Old and the New Testament are superfluous if someone is saved by nature, as Valentinus thinks, or is of the elect by nature, as Basilides thinks. I'll tell you the story of how I started born in the 2nd century. I was at a training for my work where I had to travel to a different city. And at the beginnings of these trainings, they like to have icebreakers. And they don't just want you to stand up and introduce yourself, which would have been bad enough. But in this case, you had to come up with an interesting fact to say about yourself. I did not have any interesting facts to share. My biggest achievement in life up to that time was listening to the Gun Club's Fire of Love album. But for whatever reason, when it came to be my turn, I said... I do a podcast on the origin of ancient religions. And at that time, I did not do a podcast on the origin of ancient religions. At that point, it had been just a half-baked idea that I'd had two summers previously, but there was such a response to it that I said it again later that day on Twitter. And there was an even bigger response, and I thought, maybe I should do a podcast on the origin of ancient religions. My goal was to do the second century origins of Christianity, an idea that I'd been developing offline since about 2014. But when I decided to do the show, I did a crash research program to fully review and get reacquainted with everything I'd need to know and in a relatively short time. So I assembled a list of books to reread. And the first one I chose was the first edition of the New Testament by David Trobish. Part of the reason for that was because it's short. It's kind of like when they have International Reading Day, where everyone in the world is supposed to read a book, and most of the time they pick Heart of Darkness because it's short. By the way, that's some book to be reading if you're only going to be reading one book per year, but I started my research by rereading this book, the first edition of the New Testament. David Trobish is a theologian, the son of missionaries, in fact, and he has developed a theory on the origin of the New Testament that has profound implications for my theory on the late origin of Christianity. Here's what he says, quote, The New Testament, 
in the form that achieved canonical status, is not the result of a lengthy and complicated collecting process that lasted for several centuries. The history of the New Testament is the history of an edition, a book that has been published and edited by a specific group of editors at a specific place and at a specific time. End quote. All copies, all versions of what we know as the New Testament go back to a single original collection that was published in the late 2nd century by one of the factions within the Christianity of the time. So we're going to talk about this theory of David Trobish and his evidence for it. Now, I don't consider him to be a radical. In fact, if I'm understanding this book correctly, he believes that all the Christian scriptures are genuine and early and that Paul wrote the letter to the Hebrews, which was already a reactionary view in like the 400s AD, but this is a pretty radical hypothesis in and of itself. Now, it's always interesting to see the reaction of the mainstream theologians when one of their own comes up with an interesting and innovative idea like this. I'm not talking about the reaction from the fundamentalists or the apologists. Of course, they hate it. It's far too damaging to their worldview, but the mainstream theologians, they spend so much of their time setting themselves up as gatekeepers, constantly reminding people like me that we don't have the right credentials to discuss this material. But when one of their own comes up with a potentially dangerous theory, they can't just say outright that it's kooky because this guy has the required credentials. This is where credentialism will fuck you up. It doesn't account for a dangerous idea coming from within. But the mainstream theologians generally don't like these dangerous theories because their business is defending a paradigm. But when the dangerous theory comes from within, they'll criticize it, but they'll soft pedal it. They'll say like, oh, well, it's intriguing. Whenever you see a theologian describing a theory as intriguing, you know they're fucking pissed. Here are some reviews by theologians of this David Trobish book, quote, the thesis is intriguing and well-documented, but there are a number of gaps in the book, end quote. Another one, quote, whatever the merits of this intriguing proposal that a 27-book edition of the New Testament was produced in the second century, that notion seems hard to reconcile with bloody bloody fucking blah, end quote. Quote, an intriguing thesis in many ways, Trobish's work is problematic and has not attracted widespread support, end quote. You keep seeing here that they imply that the theory has all these problems, but in actuality, they actually don't present anything strong to counter it. I'll save you the time of reading their full reviews. You know, they don't have like a slam dunk, silver bullet. It's all just counter conjecture that they do. So this is what it looks like when the call's coming from inside the theologian's house. It doesn't happen that often, but it's always fun when it does. Well, why are they so upset? Well, we talked earlier about the mainstream consensus view of how the New Testament developed over time by degrees, that classical liberal, weak empiricist sort of Whig view of history theory of how the New Testament came into being, and that's what they're defending. But let's talk about a theory that makes much more sense. Let's see the evidence that David Trobish has found for the New Testament having been a standalone book that was compiled and released in the second century. And the book itself, first edition of the New Testament, gets five bags of popcorn, five bags of soda, five cans of soda. goes without saying. Now, the first piece of evidence that Trobish presents is the nomina sacra, or sacred names. He says that anyone who picks up a manuscript of the Greek New Testament for the first time and tries to read a few lines of it will soon make an interesting discovery. It doesn't matter when or where the manuscript was written, whether it's a majuscule or a minuscule, meaning whether it's written in all capital letters or whether it also contains lowercase, whether it was written on papyrus or written on parchment, whether it's from the Gospels, the letters, or the book of Revelation. 
Any manuscript of the New Testament will contain certain contracted terms that have to be decoded by the reader, and these are called the nomina sacra. The nomina sacra are a set of about 15 words that are always abbreviated whenever they appear in ancient copies of the New Testament or in Christian copies of the Jewish Bible. They're words like God, Lord, Jesus, Spirit, Christ, Man, Father, Heaven, Israel, and so on. Instead of writing these words out, the copyist would generally write only the first and last letter of the word and draw a line over the top. So for Jesus or Jesus, it would be I-S or Iota Sigma with a horizontal line over the top. And this method doesn't really vary between the different copies. What does tend to vary is the words that are abbreviated this way. In some copies, they may abbreviate the word Father. In others, they don't abbreviate Father. But generally, they all agree on the big ones, God, Jesus, Lord, Christ. So this suggests that the copyists who made all these manuscripts were ultimately working off of an original, now lost version that had these abbreviations. And this specific style of abbreviation did not come from Judaism. It wasn't something that the Christian scribes and copyists merely inherited because it was already historically being done by Jews. As Trobisch points out, in Jewish copies of the Greek Bible that were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, these nomina sacra were not used. What Jewish copyists would do is put the tetragrammaton, that is the four-letter name of God, in Hebrew letters when they were copying out the Jewish Bible in Greek and they got to a place where the name of God was mentioned. So it's possible that the nomina sacra were a kind of a Christian take on this Jewish practice of writing out the tetragrammaton in Hebrew. The point is, no one knows how or why the nomina sacra were developed but they were standard in Christian text, seemingly from the very beginning. But another thing about this, because, you know, someone might say, well, these are just abbreviations. Maybe it was common in Greco-Roman culture at the time to abbreviate words this way, but the nomina sacra are not like the usual abbreviations in Greek like we find in inscriptions and pottery. Normally in antiquity, abbreviations were done by writing the first letters of the word only. But generally in the nomina sacra, the first and last letters of the word are written. So this is a unique system. And it was a unique Christian invention created by the editors of the first copy of the New Testament. As Trobisch says, this was a conscious editorial decision made by a specific publisher and was meant in some way to distinguish this book, the New Testament, from competing publications. The nomina sacra are evidence of a single original edition because we would have to ask how, if there was no single original edition, how did all these Christian scribes in all these different places know to use this deeply idiosyncratic method of abbreviation every time a New Testament book was copied? What, did they all subscribe to the same newsletter? Was this just like a bulletin that everyone got? And then when a Christian scribe copies out the letters of Paul and submits them for approval without the nomina sacra, the manager comes up behind his desk and says like, hey, Publius. Yeah, I noticed that uh, in your copying, you didn't use the nomina sacra. Yeah, it's just that we're doing nomina sacra in all our copies now, so if you just go ahead and kind of get that done, that'd be great. Oh, and uh, I'm going to need you to go ahead and come in over the weekend, too. Uh, the guy who was copying First Corinthians got mauled by a goat, so we need to go ahead and sort of play catch up. No, they were all using the system of nomina sacra because it was used in the very first edition of the New Testament, the one from which all later copies derive. 
Another piece of evidence that Trobisch gives is the fact that from the very beginning, New Testament manuscripts came in the form of codices and not scrolls. Codices are essentially bound books, and they were rarely used for non-Christian writings in the first few centuries A.D. By the way, I've changed my thinking somewhat on the use of C.E. and B.C.E. I mean, don't get me wrong, I still don't say them, but I now acknowledge that, for example, if a Jewish person says 80 years B.C. or before Christ, that could be like a backdoor way of implying that Jesus was the Messiah. So I understand where it would be a personal choice not to say it, but for me personally, I have no such reservations. I tend to just go with what things are commonly called. Like my hometown was called Tom's River. Like who the fuck's Tom? No one knows. It was never discussed in the entire 18 years I lived there. So I just go with the popular usage. Now, as an aside, I also use the term Old Testament. And I noticed that when some listeners have written to me, they don't often use the term Old Testament. They use Tanakh or uh, Jewish Bible. But I want to be clear, and this is always a big debate on like Twitter and stuff, but Old Testament to me is not some kind of negative value judgment on Judaism. Old Testament is the name of a specific Christian compilation of certain Jewish books. It is not synonymous with the term Jewish Bible or Hebrew Bible because the Hebrew Bible has a different order and a different arrangement and there's differences in the content. Now, these books themselves are Jewish. I mean, there's no question. They were all created well before Christianity arrived on the scene and have nothing to do with Christianity. But we need to be more precise in the terminology here. There are major differences between even the Septuagint and the Hebrew Bible, for example, and those are both Jewish editions. And the Old Testament was a term that Christians started using at the exact same time that they started using the term New Testament. And that's because, as we'll discuss in this series, and as David Trobisch points out, in this first edition, in these early codices, the Old Testament and the New Testament were bound together and presented as a unified whole. But like I said, the earliest copies of the New Testament from the beginning were written in codices. It suggests that all these copies come from a common exemplar, and that exemplar had been in codex form. Now, codices were not the standard format for books in the period. They tended to be for personal use mainly, things like diaries and notes and so on. It was so rare for them to be used in publishing actual books for sale, so much so that in the small number of cases where a Roman author says that his book is going to come out in codex form, it is considered notable and worthy of special mention. But the Christian books were being published like this seemingly from the very beginning. It's one of the areas in which the Christians were innovators. Now, why did they choose codices over scrolls? Well, the theologian Bruce Metzger suggests that it had to do with the length of the Christian books. In a scroll format, the Gospel of Luke would have had to have been about 32 feet long, whereas the maximum length of a scroll that was still convenient to handle was about 35 feet long. And the theologian Jason Larson suggests that copying the Old and New Testaments into a codex would be much more convenient for readers that needed to be constantly flipping back and forth between the various books. He says that lawyers and doctors used the codex for their reference notebooks. I mean, you look at someone like Clement of Alexandria who quotes the Old Testament something like nine billion times, and he juxtaposes those Old Testament quotes with similar New Testament quotes. And you have to consider, that was not easy back then. And I don't buy this idea that they were always able to quote from memory. I'll discuss that on a show at some point, but it's hardly easy now to write a huge paper and get all your references together. And so a codex format would have made that much easier than leafing through 50 million scrolls all the time. But going back to David Trobisch, 
If the New Testament books were all written separately and only came to be accepted as part of a collection over time, we would expect a track record of manuscript evidence that's much more anarchic. We should expect a good portion of them to be in scrolls, some of them maybe in codex form, but the fact that they are uniformly in codex form suggests that there was a single source that they were all coming from. Back after this. Anonymous anti-Montanist author from the early 3rd century AD. I've hesitated until now, not through lack of ability to refute falsehood or bear testimony for the truth, but because of my fear and apprehension that I might seem to some to be adding to the doctrines or the precepts of the gospel of the New Testament, to which it's impossible for one chosen to live in accordance with it, either to add to or to take away from. That was a reading from an anonymous writer, an anonymous Christian pamphlet against the heresy of Montanism. It was written in the early 200s AD, and I'm sorry that I had to end his sentence in a preposition, but that's what kind of translator I am, I guess. But he used the phrase, the word of the new covenant or new testament of the gospel. What this author is saying is that he was worried about writing this little book because he was afraid he would be seen as trying to add to something called the New Testament. The New Testament is, to him, a closed collection of books. If the contents of the New Testament were decided on by slow, decentralized, organic agreement over many centuries, then why is this author from the early 200s freaking out about the integrity of something that he's calling the New Testament? It implies that it already existed at that early date as a freestanding book, and we return to the theory of David Trobish on this. Another piece of evidence that he gives for a single original edition of the New Testament is the arrangement and number of writings that are found in it. He says that this is the most important evidence for clarifying the history of the New Testament, because if it can be shown that the arrangements of writings, the order of the books in the ancient copies that we found of the New Testament are the same or similar to each other, then that suggests that all these copies go back to a common archetype. And he shows that, indeed, the early copies of the New Testament arranged the books in the same or a similar order. In the oldest complete editions of the New Testament, that is the Codex Vaticanus and the Codex Sinaiticus from the 4th century, we find the same order of the individual books that we find in modern Bibles, except they put Acts with the epistles, and instead of putting Hebrews after Paul's letters, they put it somewhere towards the middle, because at this time, it was still an open question whether Paul had actually written Hebrews. So the position of two books is slightly different from what would become the familiar order. But the vast majority of the ancient copies of the New Testament that we found, the ancient manuscripts, and a manuscript doesn't have to be complete, it could be just a scrap of parchment, no bigger than a slingshot, just like the one that Bart used in the video game Bart's Nightmare in the Bartman stage. The vast majority of ancient copies arrange the books in what we now know as the canonical order. And just to point out, the majority of our New Testament copies are not complete. They may even be one page or part of a page. They may be just a handful of books, only Paul's letters, for example, or only some of Paul's letters. 
But nine times out of 10, literally, in the fragmentary New Testament copies, the books contained in them follow the canonical order. The only exceptions are in cases where any difference in the order can be easily explained. For example, there's a manuscript called P46. It contains Paul's letters, but not in the canonical order. But we can easily see that that's because they were arranged, in this case, by length. And Trobisch points out another example of a manuscript where the canonical order isn't followed. He says that in one codex, the Gospels are arranged in the strange order of Matthew, John, Luke, and Mark, where it's supposed to be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he says that there are a number of strange stains or spots, almost like a white liquid was repeatedly dripping onto the first page of each gospel in this codex. Shame on you, listener. These stains or spots are actually drops of wax from candles. The reason that there are so many drops of wax on the title pages of the gospels in this manuscript are because this gospel arrangement is so strange that whenever someone came to this monastery, they'd be invited to look at this curious manuscript and witness how strange it was. You know, and they would hold a candle over it because, you know, Ben Franklin hadn't invented electricity yet, but the vast majority of ancient copies of the New Testament reflect a uniform order in how the books follow one another. Therefore, we should expect that they all come from one single original edition. Otherwise, What are the odds that all of these gospels and all of these letters would be arranged in the same order over and over again, no matter where they were copied, no matter who copied them? We'll talk much more about this arrangement of the books when we discuss each individual New Testament document, but what I mean to say is that, for example, there's no logical reason why the New Testament letters should come after the gospels and acts, especially when the letters were supposedly written by contemporaries of Jesus like Peter and James. Yeah, that's how they're arranged in every single case. I mean, you look at P74, you look at Codex Sinaiticus or Vaticanus or Alexandrinus or Ephraimi Rescriptus. I could find no ancient examples of the letters being placed before the Gospels, whereas that's actually something that's been done in like modern reinterpretations of the New Testament. And it's something that I would probably do if I were a Christian believer, you know, creating my own New Testament take the books written by Peter, Paul, James, and John, and just put those at the beginning, and then your Gospels follow them as the secondary testimony. But no, all of our ancient examples follow what appears to be a fixed order decided by someone at some point. How could this be the case if the order and contents of the New Testament books evolved organically in a decentralized way over a period of decades or centuries? It couldn't. Now, a minute ago, I pointed out that not all ancient New Testament manuscripts are complete. Well, another phenomenon that we find in many of these partial manuscripts is that they contain one of four collection units or one of four groups. The first one being the Gospels, the second one being Acts and the General Letters, the third being Paul's Letters, and the fourth being Revelation. Like a manuscript will sometimes be just one of those four things. And in those, it's rare to see like the Gospel of Matthew next to 1 Peter, followed by a handful of Paul's letters. No, it's usually Paul's letters are grouped together in their own little book. The four Gospels are grouped in their own little book, etc. And this also implies a single original edition because these collection units are always so similar. The chances of these collection units being the same across all these different manuscripts are about the same as if Lord of the Rings, you know, with its three parts, had been released in the beginning as like one huge complete book. 
like Tolkien never said like, okay, this first part will be called fellowship of the ring and it'll end at this point. And part two, the two towers will begin. Like imagine if he sent it as just one big book to every publisher in the world simultaneously, like as one giant book. And it's actually something like that was actually his original intent, by the way. But imagine he did this and somehow every publisher in the world, completely independently of each other, all had the exact same idea to split the Lord of the Rings into three constituent books that all matched one another and all had the same subtitle. Just do this as a thought exercise. And remember the first line of the two towers, Aragorn sped on up the hill. It would be very surprising if, without any guidance from the author, two or more publishers independently decided to make that line the beginning of a whole new book in the trilogy. And now apply this to the New Testament. How likely would it be that the same books are always being bound up with each other in a similar order? Just as with the Lord of the Rings example, this implies that all copies of the New Testament come from one common first edition. Another piece of evidence that David Trobish presents is the actual titles of the New Testament books, starting with the Gospels, the Gospel according to Mark, the Gospel according to Luke, Katamarkon Evangelion, Katalukan Evangelion. Now, first of all, Gospel or Evangelion. Evangelion is not the name of an established literary genre where the contents of the work would have been obvious to just any Greco-Roman reader just by saying in its title that it was a gospel. Like, we know what a gospel is. A gospel, in so many words, is a record of Jesus' ministry and death that reads like it was written by someone whose two halves of their brain weren't properly communicating with each other. Like, that's what a gospel is. But we only recognize that because of thousands of years of tradition and familiarity with the term. An ancient Roman pagan would not know what a gospel was. It wouldn't have been self-explanatory to him if he saw this on the shelf. It's like if I released a book called Fish Cushion According to Mark, you'd be like, what is a fish cushion? Now, not that gospel would have been a nonsense word to the Roman reader. I mean, it meant good news or it could mean like proclamation of good news, but these titles in the New Testament are using it as if gospel would be well-recognized as the name of some type of book, good news book, like it's painfully idiosyncratic. Now, that's part one on the gospel titles. Part two is the clause according to that's found in each one, according to Mark, according to Luke. According to in Koine Greek is kata, and the word following kata takes the accusative case and kata followed by an accusative is extremely rare and almost unheard of for book titles, according to David Trobish. And we, in fact, see it in only a handful of other examples in history, all of which come from the titles of the Greek translations of the Jewish scriptures, according to the 70 as the Septuagint, according to Aquila, according to Symmachus, according to Theodosian. Now that I think about this, I think I talked about this in episode four, the Mark's gospel intro and I think I mentioned David Trobish there as well. Aquila, Symmachus, and Theodosian were supposedly uh, the names of Jews in the second century who retranslated the Jewish scriptures into Greek because they each had one problem or another with the Septuagint. Um, the odds of two different people independently coming up with a title like Gospel According to Mark are so slight as to be almost impossible. So these titles had to have originated with one weirdo or a group of weirdos that came up with them. 
And these were the first people to gather these four specific gospels, put them under one roof, and write these whack-ass titles above them for the first time. The titles are just too strange for us to believe that they were developed independently. Now, moving on to Acts of the Apostles. The word Acts, or praxis, was the name of an actual genre at the time, and it had to do with the notable deeds and actions of famous people or even city-states, but the contents of Acts of the Apostles would not in and of themselves automatically suggest that genre. Acts of the Apostles is more of a sprawling yarn. You know, it's that sprawling New Yorker shit, and it, sometimes it's a straightforward history, sometimes it's travel narrative, Sometimes it's the record of a debate or controversy. The title itself does not actually provide an accurate picture of the contents. It's called Acts of the Apostles, but only two apostles are really highlighted. That's Peter and Paul. And Paul is actually only called an apostle twice. And I think even that was by accident. I think the editor just forgot to delete those two references. So again, we always got to go back to this and ask ourselves, what are the odds of two people holding this book in their hands? Like try this experiment today. Have two different people skim through Acts of the Apostles. Non-Christians, I would have thought. Uh, don't tell them the title. Ask them what they think the book is called. And if they both independently come up with the title Acts of the Apostles, I will change the name of this podcast from Born in the Second Century to Born in the Fish Cushion. So it's most appropriate that this title, which is reflected in the manuscript copies, would have come from a single original edition of the New Testament where this weird title was first used. Now, the titles for the letters of Paul. There are in quite a few ancient copies of the New Testament, and their titles are always as follows. To the Romans, to the Corinthians, to the Jupitorians, etc. Whereas we would expect them to be entitled Paul's letter to the Romans, Paul's letter to the Jupitorians. As David Trobisch says, it's unlikely that these abbreviated titles, you know, to the Romans and so on, would have been arrived at independently. They all had to go back to a common source where this was, for whatever reason, the method of giving titles to the letters that the editor decided on. Also, when you look at something like Paul's letter to Philemon, as he says, let me actually read the first line of Paul's letter to Philemon here. It says, quote, Paul, the slave of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, the brother, to Philemon, our beloved one and fellow worker, and to Aphia, the sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the assembly that's in your house, end quote. So Philemon is not the sole addressee. In fact, the letter is technically addressed to an entire church. But in all ancient copies of the New Testament that contain this letter, it is always called to Philemon, not Paul's letter to Philemon and Aphia and Archippos and the church in their house, not Paul's letter to Philemon et al., not Paul's letter to Philemon's house church. It's always simply to Philemon, which means that every single one of these copyists either came up with this same strange title independently, or all these copies go back to a lost common source that had entitled this letter to Philemon. And this applies to the attributions of these books as well, because according to Trobisch, any New Testament document that names its author within its texts, and by that he's mainly talking about the Gospels, the name of the author was actually chosen by the first compiler of the New Testament. And we're going to talk about the authorship attribution in the next few episodes when we discuss each book. But what this means is that when the first compiler of the New Testament was arranging these texts, the Gospels were anonymous. And the titles for them 
were chosen based on scattered references in the other books that would help the reader tie all this disparate material together. Thus, what we know as Mark's gospel was attributed to Mark because, in the compiler's mind, the gospel already being linked to Peter and the tradition, he found a reference to a man named Mark in the first letter of Peter. And this trusted companion of Peter was, to him, an obvious choice to have written the gospel that was based on Peter's preaching. So he wrote, according to Mark, above this book in the first edition of the New Testament. And we talked about that in episode four. The Gospel of Luke was given that name because it appears to have been written by a constant companion of Paul. Luke and Acts state that they're written by the same author. Acts ends with Paul in camera, so the name of the companion of Paul who would have been in the best position to write Luke-Acts was drawn from Paul's letters. In this case, a man named Luke is mentioned in Colossians, 2 Timothy, and Philemon. As Trobish says, the reader is never left to guess who Mark is, who Luke is, even though those Gospels themselves don't explain it. In other words, the titles of the Gospels are redactional. But like I said, we'll go into much more detail on that when discussing each book, but it's a big part of this thesis. The ascribed authorship was part of the compiler's strategy, and it ties in with their arrangement in the collection. And even though we will also cover the arrangement of the books when we discuss each individual one, we need to talk briefly about it here for a minute. In short, Trobisch says that when you look at the order of the New Testament books from what we can see in the most ancient copies, whoever arranged these books had an agenda. And that agenda was to harmonize discordant views. For example, even though Acts of the Apostles represents itself as being written by Luke and should logically come after Luke if these books were being arranged into a collection, Acts instead comes after the Gospels but before Paul's letters. Now, Paul's letters, if you read them independently, seem like they were written by a guy who's doing his own thing. Paul represents himself as fiercely independent, often at odds and often feuding with those who were apostles before him, James, Peter, and John, as he famously delineates them in the letter to the Galatians that we talked about in episodes seven and eight. Well, in the ancient New Testament collections, we find that Acts of the Apostles, which portrays Paul as a pliant company man, is placed before Paul's letters. And Paul's letters themselves are immediately followed by those of his rivals, James, Peter, and John, in the exact order that those three are mentioned in Galatians. And what all this does, this planned arrangement of these books into the collection, is to paper over any disputes between Paul and these other men that would be suggested by Paul's own letters. I mean, if you're reading these books side by side in a collection, the unspoken takeaway is that whatever conflict appears in them was resolved after all. Like another way of looking at this is that the radioactive material of Paul's letters has been safely lined with lead on either side in the form of the safe Catholic texts of Acts of the Apostles on one side and James, Peter, and John on the other. So that's the kind of thing that Trobisch points out. But as I said, I'll delve much more into this when discussing the specifics of each New Testament book as we move forward in this little mini-series. So we've talked about the evidence for there having been an original, official New Testament compilation that came out in the late second century. And now we get to the point where we have to deal with the criticisms of this theory. Well, one big one is that there's no official record of such a thing ever happening. There's no church council or memorandum from some cleric from the year 180 that's like, okay, here's the New Testament and it's these 27 books and if you don't like it, we'll cut your balls off. But David Trobisch reminds us that 
This first edition of the New Testament appeared at a time when Christianity was still a chaos of warring sects. You know, the New Testament did not emanate from the central services office of Christianity, like in that movie Brazil, you know, with staffers running around and centrally administering the church. It was one specific publication by one specific sect. He calls it just one more ambitious Christian publication of the second century, one that faced strong competition. And we recall from previous episodes that the sect of Christianity that ultimately became dominant is what we've called early mainstream Christianity. And this New Testament was part of a propaganda campaign by this sect that it used as part of its drive for dominance in the time that it was at war with the Gnostics, at war with the schools of Basilides and Valentinus, at war with the charismatic movement of Montanus. In our time, it seems anachronistic that these 27 books will be brought under one roof and published and disseminated, and it just happens to be the same 27 books that the Resurrection Baptist Church down the street used this past Sunday in its services. But it's not so anachronistic when we remember that the group that published the first New Testament was not yet dominant. This product was part of its campaign for dominance, and they released it not just as a way of putting out and defining official scripture, but to unify dissimilar material. Include key texts from the religion of Paul, from the churches of John in Eastern Asia Minor, include four gospels representing four major church traditions, and present them as part of one big superstructure, and paper over the differences between them. I mean, the mere fact that they're being presented without comment as part of a unified whole is enough of a statement in itself, because in doing that, you're effectively saying that there are no conflicts between the letters of Paul and the letters of John, even though Paul calls for baptism by water, and John says it's not by water only. No conflicts between the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of John, even though John has Jesus cleanse the temple at the beginning of his ministry and has Jesus visit Jerusalem multiple times, even though Mark has him visit only once. No conflicts between the letter to the Hebrews and the book of Acts, despite the fact that Hebrews contains the most revolutionary passage in the Christian Bible at the beginning of its chapter 6. Let's leave behind the elementary teaching about the Christ and press on to perfection. Whereas this same elementary teaching about the Christ is the very basis of preaching and conversion throughout the whole book of Acts. Presenting these books as part of a unified whole was a major propaganda coup by the early mainstream church, which at this time was only one sect among many, but it was the sect that was the best position to lead this new religion into its future. And think back to what we've said many times on this show, the power that written testimony had on influencing thinking. I don't know if you've seen the book of Eli, which is like a post-apocalyptic scenario in which the villain Gary Oldman is hot in a biscuit to get his hands on a written copy of the Bible to build a foundation for his new society. You know, the screenwriter was depicting a phenomenon that's true about human beings in general, a need to gravitate towards sacred books, authoritative written texts, and how much more salient was this phenomenon in the ancient world? I'm telling you that if something was written down in a book, these ancient Mediterranean people are already 95% of the way there. All you need to do to seal the deal is spit in their eyes, you know, give them a wet willy to alleviate their glaucoma, declare it a miracle, and they'll show up Sunday next, fasting and penitent. So this is the response to the criticism that there's no official record of this. It's not something that would have merited an official record because it was really a sectarian propaganda coup and not like an ecumenical church decision as such. 
But are there other possible criticisms of this theory about a first edition of the New Testament? Well, one is that in some ancient copies, extra books like the Shepherd of Hermas can be found alongside the canonical books. Now, another thing is that we find heavy disagreement about whether certain writings should be considered canonical, like we talked about earlier. It's usually the letter of James, uh, second letter of Peter, letter of Jude, and so on. Well, these things are really two sides of the same coin. And I talked about this somewhat earlier in the show with the example of some who don't consider the Star Wars prequels to be canonical. And this is exactly what we're seeing with the Christian documents where people like Eusebius in the 300s are saying that like uh, the second letter of Peter doesn't belong in the canon. What happened was that in the 180s, a faction within the early mainstream church released this list of books together in a compilation. And the later clerics who quibbled about some of these books had to work with it. And when they say some disagree about Second Peter, some disagree about the letter of James, some disagree about the letter to the Hebrews, what they're really saying in effect is that they don't like that these books are part of the mainstream church's collection. They wish they were taken out. They're like the Star Wars fans who don't accept the prequels, or like me, not accepting The Empire Strikes Back. I mean, I just think that that movie owes its existence solely to the success of the first one, which was really meant to be self-contained, but then it blew up, and he had to get Lee Brackett in there to help him write the script and whatnot. But the other side of the coin when it comes to this criticism of the Trobish theory is when we see documents like Barnabas and the Shepherd of Hermas being added to these ancient manuscripts. And what those groups of ancient Christians were effectively saying was that they wanted Barnabas and Hermas to be added to the official lineup. And that, by way of analogy, would be like a Star Wars fan insisting that his own personal fan fiction be added to the Star Wars canon. And that's an apt comparison because fan fiction is what these early Christian books overwhelmingly are. So the fact that the Christians of the second and third centuries appear to be arguing about whether certain books should be accepted should rather be seen as a kind of a secondary debate and a response to an already existing compilation, which was the first New Testament, which had been put out by one sectarian group among many. Another possible criticism of this theory, we spoke about the selection of the titles and the arrangement of the books as having significance to the editor of the first New Testament. It's been pointed out by critics that this method is a bit obscure, a bit recondite. In other words, readers of the first New Testament would not necessarily have picked up on the fact that Paul was an agreeable company man simply because his letters were stashed between Acts of the Apostles on the one side and the letters of his rivals like James and Peter and John on the other. It's too clever by half, they say. To which I would respond, the early Christians, especially the early mainstream church, was not known for its clarity of expression. For example, Justin Martyr says that the cross of Christ is predicted in the book of Genesis insofar as God appeared to Abraham when standing next to a tree. Now, of course, tree, wood, cross, a lot of these words are used interchangeably in the early documents when talking about the crucifixion, but Justin Martyr must be smoking a fucking tree if he expects us to readily make a connection between Jesus on the cross and God standing next to a tree 6,000 years ago. Now, these were obscurantists of the highest order. And this clever, sneaky arrangement of the books of the New Testament is the kind of thing that would be straight out of their playbook. As a side note, a lot of these counter-arguments to Trobish came from a review of the David Trobish book by Jason T. Larson. The reason we spend so much time covering someone else's theory today is because it's foundation building. 
world building. One of the big things that theologians get away with is claiming that the Christian church of the time of Irenaeus and the early church fathers had a kind of a rich tapestry of vibrant traditions that they picked and chose from, especially when it came to sacred books. And the ones that eventually became favored were the result of a great and thorough winnowing process. But if the New Testament debuted suddenly and contained all or substantially all of the books that it does today, and if these early fathers immediately dropped whatever nonsense they had been working off of and accept this New Testament as their primary authority source, it reveals a major secret about Christian origins. And that is that the value of these early writers as witnesses to early Christianity is severely compromised. They can't tell us anything definite about the New Testament books or their authorship. Anything they say about these things will be seen to be guesswork. The compilation just landed on their desk with minimal explanation, or as I'll hypothesize in this series, it may have originally had appended to it the writings of Papias, which were like a shitty attempt to give a backstory to these disparate books. And this means that the New Testament and its books and their reception does not have decades and decades and decades of rich tradition behind it. It was just something that dropped onto their desk, like I just said, and the question then becomes, How can that be? Think back to what I said at the beginning of episode one. We are told by the theologians that the Christian church of the late 100s was supposed to be a thriving organization, albeit a bit small still at the time, but certainly a going concern that had been developing over five generations. But the late debut of the New Testament anthology and its sudden acceptance by the powers that be in this era of the late 100s suggests that that wasn't actually the case. And that's what we need to explore. If the New Testament canon was a series of books that organically came together over generations of careful study and interfacing and synergy among the various churches and spirited debate, then how are the strange things that we've discussed today explained? And we'll delve further into this matter in the coming episodes. Lastly, would any episode of Born in the Second Century be complete without a reading from the number one buster, the Christian author Tertullian? from against Praxeus, another one of these early fools who nonetheless understands the term New Testament as referring to a physical book. Quote, Praxeus needs to tell us how Christ could ever possibly have been thought to be the Father. He's clearly defined to us in all scriptures, in the Old Testament as the Christ of God, in the New Testament as the Son of God. Today, we began a new ongoing mini-series, Brighten the Corners, and we'll continue it in the next few episodes as we do an overview of the New Testament. And today, we outline the theory of David Trobisch that the New Testament ultimately goes back to a single published edition that was a conscious creation by Catholic editors of the late 100s AD. The New Testament, which begins with four presentations of an earthly Jesus and appends to them a library of stories and epistles to bolster that presentation, was self-consciously produced by a specific sect within the Christianity of the time. It was the strain of Christianity that was one of the closest to Judaism, the strain that had its headquarters in Rome, had contacts in the imperial court, had satellite churches in northern Africa, southern Gaul, Corinth in Greece, and especially the Greek city-states of the Anatolian littoral, the strain of Christianity that boasted the most educated and upwardly mobile clergy. It was this strain of Christianity whose strategy was to bring order to the chaos of warring sects, like Tao Tao in the Romance of the Three Kingdoms. 
And one of the ways they sought to establish this order was by the publication of the first New Testament. Not a collection of books that became authoritative through a kind of gradual organic accretion, but texts that became authoritative by virtue of being in this collection. And placing them there was a conscious, premeditated decision that happened relatively early in the development of Christianity. Beginning in the next episode, we will examine each one of these texts and we'll discuss the authorship and dating of each one. And we'll describe why and how the decision was made to place each of them in this collection. I asked us to consider at the beginning, if the New Testament debuted as a self-contained book at the end of the 100s AD, consider the implications that that fact has for early Christianity. The implication is that those who received the New Testament, the Clements and the Tertullians of the world, accepted it unquestioningly as authoritative because they had no competing traditions to draw upon, no lived experience, and no local practice. The Christian religion began later in history than is commonly supposed. If it began in the mid-first century, there is no way that these clerics of the late 100s would have blithely accepted this collection and allowed it to supersede whatever traditions, whatever experience, whatever practices they had followed in the church up to that time. And in the name of St. Candida, we declare the entire New Testament itself to be late and spurious and kind of shady. And we'll continue to show that in the coming weeks and months. Thank you for listening. This criticism is ended. Go in peace. Historical reality. 